welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Rachel S. Morgan is an award-winning fiction writer, screenwriter, and emerging television showrunner. A former entertainment journalist and recipient of the Josephine Ulrich Literature Prize, her previous film and television credits include Wanted, Mako Mermaids, and The Bachelor. Rachel writes a lot of things, but has a particular penchant for drama that makes you laugh, comedy that stabs you in the feels, stuff that is high camp, and scary AF and historical fiction. If there's magic, pop stars, or vampires in the mix, all the better. She's soon to release the first book in a brand new rom-com mystery series through Daring Press and is currently developing a diverse film and television slate that includes her new dark comedy TV show, Disgraceful. Disgraceful is also her current novel work in progress because she doesn't think she has enough things on her plate. Rachel likes yoga, tattoos, and cheese, but not in that order. Mostly the cheese comes first. So here's my big question. Anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while, and if you haven't, please go and listen to past episodes that feature Rachel Morgan. She is a unicorn in my eyes. And I know that there are other writers who do this, but she does it exceptionally well. And what is it I'm talking about? I'm talking about having in her mind both the way to write a screenplay, as well as how to use that for how she might write a novel. And she bounces back and forth between the two. And as people might know, I mean, obviously a screenplay, whether it's a movie, maybe a movie is a little bit closer to a novel sometimes. But when you're talking about series, the way that you break it down is a little bit different. So tell me first, how do you do that? How do you (laughs) use (laughs) your strength with screenwriting or script writing and have that be a benefit to you when you're writing out long form and novel form? I think it's to do with plotting. And I... uh, I mean, I, when we've talked about this before on the podcast, Emma Gray, our friend and writerly colleague, <laughs> is definitely a pant, more of a pantser. And I am definitely a plotter. And I always have been, even before I started screenwriting, I would kind of think everything through in, in my mind and know where I wanted to go and know how I wanted things to end. And so I would have that kind of piece together like a jigsaw puzzle. And mm. it, it, it still leaves room for surprises. It doesn't mean everything's really, really rigid, but I, I think I, I need that sense of control, I think, to really allow myself to sink into the story, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's it's kind of what works for me. It feels like I've got yeah. that life raft below me. When I started screenwriting, I, I already knew quite a bit about story structure and, you know, everything from the hero's journey to uh, the, the whole bunch of theories, I guess, out there around story structure. I learned a lot more about that within the context of writing a feature film or writing a TV show. And I, I got my first job in television and, and was working as a storyline on a TV show. And I think just that understanding of how to break down parts of a story, depending on what you're writing, I, I think it's it, it, it's all transferable when you're talking about how stories are, are built. 
I think when you're looking at writing fiction, especially long, long form, as opposed to writing a screenplay, whether that be for television or film, they're two very different skills. I mean, yeah. the understanding of story and the way they're pieced together can be similar, of course, depending on what you're writing. But the actual writing itself is very, very different. I know there are a, a lot of writers out there that find it very difficult to switch between the two because, and there's a number of reasons for this. Obviously, when you're writing fiction, you have everything at your disposal. You've got, got your dialogue, you've got backstory, you've got inner monologue, you've got description, you've got exposition, you've got all, all of those things. And when you're writing a script, obviously, a lot of that gets removed because all that needs to be on the page is what you can see. So you don't have the benefit of in a monologue. You don't have the benefit of um, knowing what the character is thinking unless you, you know, unless you employ voiceover or something similar, yeah. um, which doesn't always work. So you can only really use what you can see. So you have to find very different ways to show things. And I think that's yeah. where the whole show don't tell thing comes in even more, more. strongly. On, on the screen is because you can only show and you, you can tell when something's being said in a show or a film that's purely for the reason of telling the audience something because it's just really the dialogue just seems a little bit off you're like yeah why did why did that person say that and you know it's because they need to pass on a bit of information to the audience but there's better ways to do that so um oh, that, wow. that was a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> that, um that they they can be very similar when it comes to the, the building blocks, I guess, yeah. the foundations of story and the way story operates in pieces, but the, the mechanics of, of getting it on the page is different. So that can be a little bit disconcerting going back and forth between the two. Sometimes it can take yeah. a bit to get back in the rhythm of the other. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Is it because, well, there are two things that jump out at me when you were saying that. And one is, as anybody who doesn't already know, Fewer words does not mean easier. So that's no. that's mm. more transparent when somebody says, oh, I'm just going to write a kid's book. Mm. Then all 50 or 500 words you have are very specifically chosen. They're yeah, every, every single word. Yeah, every single word um, needs to do the work. You know, yes. it needs to be needs to be working for you. And and screenwriting wise, the what's called big print, which obviously is your either I guess direction. I say direction. It's not really direction, but kind of what what the character is doing um, or what you can see description wise should really be as sparse as possible. I mean, there's yeah. exceptions to the rule. Obviously, if you read anything by Quentin Tarantino or, or um, <laughs> yeah. you know it's, or the Coen Brothers. Their, their way of writing is very different and kind of breaks all the rules. But, you know, you want to get to the point as quickly as possible because you want, you want, it's driven by what the characters are saying and, and, and doing. So, yeah. Well, and with screenwriting, having less of the big writing means that whatever director or actor or whatever takes it gets to yeah. put a bit more of them in. And yet everyone who's sitting around a table, potentially reading this script has to have at least some understanding of what is being conveyed. Maybe not Absolutely. the nuance, mm. but they all have to get it. And that has to come through the words. One yeah. thing with you that I've loved, and we've talked about it before, is the way that you can use your knowledge of story. And maybe because of screenwriting, so it is plotting, Mm -hmm. But you write a really extensive story structure or or plot. So if somebody says, you know, what exactly would the story go? You're basically writing the whole story. Mm. So it's longer than a synopsis. It's longer than, you know, 250 to 350 words. But it takes you through the entire arc. And then I think, 
once you have that, all you're doing is filling it in with the things like the dialogue. So how do you use that skill that you obviously have? And it's benefited you bouncing between both the screenwriting and long form, which again, as you'd said, not everyone is as adept or nor do they want to be bouncing between the two. You know, you can just say, I just don't love it. I want to see it all the way Mm. through this way first. Mm. They have a, a different question. I was going to say, how do you use that to write the long form? But in fact, let's start before that. How do you know, as the creator of a story, which way is the best way for it to come through you first? I think that's, it's been kind of instinctual, I guess, Mm. so far. I usually, if I've got a, a particular idea for something or a particular story I want to tell, there's something that I instinctually or instinctively lean towards first because that's the way I can see the story coming out. But often I get partway through that and think, mm, actually, I think this is more of more something else. So I've started novels before and then realized as I started writing it, you know what? I think I need to nut out the story kind of, um, mm. in a, a, a bit more of a, a punchy fashion, I guess. So I've written the script first and then I've gone back and written the novel or, or, you know, I've worked from a short story into a, a short film or, and the, the plotting is kind of the same. I card what's called carding it out. So I have a huge board in my living room and I have little note cards and I literally have the board split up into four, four rows, which is the top row is act one. Then uh, act two is kind of the second two rows because it's split into the mid, like the midpoint in between and then act three. And I literally write every scene gets a card and it gets, and sometimes I I might have the beginning pretty much worked out and I know what the end is and the board will look very busy at the top and very busy at the bottom with this big blank spot in the middle until yeah. I figure figure that out and I gradually just, you know, fill in the pieces and it means I can switch scenes around if they, they don't seem to be working where they are. So it's, I'm a very visual person. So even though it's still writing on those cards, it's still words, be, being able to see it in pieces and being able to see those chapters sometimes, I guess when I say chapters, scenes, helps me. And I know some people do that within like Scrivener. Some people do it actually within Final Draft if they're a, a screenwriter. I need to do it physically on a board. So once I've got that mapped out, what was the question? <laughs> well, it was sort of like, how do you know which thing a project I, I think, is? Do you, yeah, and you just were I, talking about switching yeah, it. I don't, I, 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 most of what I'm working on at the moment could potentially be either or. Yeah. And sometimes I make that decision based on what seems to be uh, getting interest uh, mm. in the conversations I'm having with people uh, in the in the industry, what I'm drawn most towards. It depends. Sometimes can depend how much television I'm watching. I, I watch yeah. a lot of content and sometimes that really gets me in that headspace. Other times it's if I've been screenwriting for quite a while or working on multiple projects, I I really feel the pull back to fiction because I feel like I need to use all of my words. I get frustrated with not being able to use uh, interior monologue or uh, really, really dense description, which I really love writing. So sometimes it just depends on how I'm feeling and what I want to write. So it's, it's not, yeah. I love it. Well, and having watched you bounce between, it feels like no matter what you're writing, you're a very visual creature. Yeah. And that you see it playing out. Yeah. Well, most of my fiction that I've written so far, that one of the things that people often say, and I, and I do see it myself is I tend to write quite filmically. Yes, Um, you do. 
Yeah, and I think that's because I grew up. I grew up around the film industry, and I, I, I grew up very, very interested in film and and television. And and so, I mean, I read voraciously. I, I read really, really early, and I've always loved books. But um, I've always loved film and television and consuming story that way. So I think sometimes that ability to just instinctively know how a story should be structured and just kind of feel my way through it. Mm. I, I sometimes say I feel like I just absorbed that by osmosis. I think <laughs> you watching did. a lot of TV. Yeah. Well, look, I th- I have the belief that we know story instinctually because it's based mm. a lot. The structure of story is based a lot on the way that we go through life. Mm. And so we all may be at different points within ourselves on multiple story arcs, mm. right? Living it out. And some take a, a really long time, if ever, to get that transformation and others mm. happen on a daily basis. And it's generally yeah. a moving toward or away. So resistance to mm-hmm. the change that we need to make. And then we Absolutely. can find ourselves back. That's why we feel like we live almost cyclically like, oh, yeah. I've reached this level. Oh, didn't I learn that lesson before? Mm-hmm. We might say to ourselves, you do have a very instinctual way, but your dialogue as well is very snappy. So like a Quentin Tarantino would be proud or even, <laughs> you know, like. Well, that is that is very high praise. <laughs> I, I do think so because it's, uh, look, and I'm biased. Anybody listening should already know I'm super biased, a massive fan. You're allowed. Of your You're work. allowed. And just because I think too, I really resonate with your voice. It's very accessible to me. It's very flawed main character. So whatever genre you're writing, you've got these uh, characters, primarily women as the main protagonist who I relate to. So Mm. they're very real, but then they're also very funny. So you always give us either a, a sidekick or maybe it's just another part of the main character's personality, but oftentimes that sidekick that gets to say the other things that we wish we could Mm. say. You're also, you have that very snappy thing. One thing that occurs to me, and it's because it's happening in your life, potentially maybe right now, you've got Mm. this great manuscript that's being shopped as a book. You've got the same story being shopped as a film or maybe episodic television. And I'm going to say the way that we used to look at film and the difference, like, oh, film is so much grander than television Mm. has absolutely been blown out of the water. Oh, it's it's a very different landscape now. Yeah, 10 years or, you know, slightly less in that television is getting more money and more money means that you can do this. But how do you take a story that, so is episodic TV, it's not more like the book. I'm just trying to think out loud, Mm -hmm. obviously, because what you're doing is you're extending it. But what you've got to do then is every single episode, and we're not talking about sitcoms, although Mm. sitcoms used to do this brilliantly, is you've got a mini transformation, Mm -hmm. right? You're still ending on a resolution and kind of a cliffhanger, right? There's got to be something that remains unresolved. Yeah. And then, but something give your consumer something to feel like, okay, 
Thank you for that. Like I've got a bit of sustenance. Yeah, I can I, wait. I, I, absolutely. I mean, that that's the way, depending on what kind of episodic TV it is. I mean, you know, some some TV shows are completely uh, self-contained, but they they have an arc across the season, but each episode is um, completely like self-contained. So yeah. like, like, a, like a procedural, so something like, you know, SVU or something like yeah. that. With, with other, other shows, I mean, yeah, you do have to, if we're talking three act structure or when you're talking television, depending on yeah. whether it's half hour, whether it's an hour, sometimes it's four or five acts rather than three acts. But whatever you're talking about, the, the arc of the story is still the same. There's still got to be some kind of, um, something happens at the beginning that sets the, the story for that episode on its journey. And even if that's a, a section of a broader or longer story, you still need to have that arc where you still kind of hit those beats of, of tension and development and, and something that happens towards the end of the episode that is quite satisfying so it's almost like uh if you look at something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer which went for seven seasons so every single episode and and it changed a little bit over the first few seasons um the first season every episode was a bit kind of monster of the week um and as the show developed it became a little bit more of a, a longer arc but within that, you'd have standalone episodes. Then you would have episodes that would have a storyline that would go over the entire season. And that would be, so the arc of the story over the season would develop in that same kind of way of building towards a climax. But within that arc, like if I drew a diagram, I wish I had a yes, white, whiteboard in front of me right now. <laughs> but I've got um, it in my brain. Yeah, so apologies every, to anybody who doesn't, doesn't have but a every episode. Every episode mm. will have that arc with within it, but then over the top of that, there would be the same kind of shape, that kind of yeah. arcing upwards towards the climax over the season. And then if you look at it as a whole, as a series, you can even see those same kind of developments and dips and and, and troughs and towards the the end. So it's kind of like um, arcs within an arc within an arc. But that's what's um, so satisfying. Like even yeah. thinking about. Any, uh, and again, apologies as well for anybody who hasn't watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I would say, <laughs> go back and watch it. Yes. It got better and better because there was more mm. and more depth. It wasn't just fun, yeah. fun vampires and, and killing. Mm. Even that transformation with Buffy and Angel and Spike, mm-hmm. not to mention all of the other secondary characters that had their own arc and their mm-hmm. own arc would support Buffy's arc or, yeah. you know, twist the knife a little bit, depending on what was needed, like what was yeah. her ultimate transformation. Mm. How do you keep it all? <laughs> do you keep it all in your brain? Do you keep it in the, um, what goes in the Bible? Like how do, how does a writer's room, by the way, say, okay, we're going to say what I think will happen anyway. Whether it's film or even more so with episodic television, you're taking this current project that could be cut up into what's the number that they might even basically be throwing around have they said um well speaking let's let's speak hypothetically because i can't really talk about the actual thing right we're just Um, talking hypothetically here hypothetically um (laughs) okay so there's still there's still the chance it could be a feature but i think it's it's leaning more towards um series just looking at kind of where the market is at the moment yeah if it was a if it's a feature basically it would it's a contemporary rom-com and it hits all the beats and it would be what you would expect from a contemporary 
rom-com. Yeah. If we, in that like 90, 90 to 120 minutes, if it's a series, well, the conversation I'm having at the moment is about why a traditional kind of contemporary rom-com would make a great series. And yeah. I, I use the example of uh, The Flat Share. So yeah. The Flat Share is obviously based on that wonderful um, the novel, rom-com novel, and it's recently been made into, I think it's an eight-part series, okay. and I'm, I'm not sure whether they're, I think they're maybe 40 minutes. I can't remember whether it's half an hour or 45 minutes. I but, don't know because um, I binge things. That's all I do. Yeah, so I don't actually yeah. remember how long an episode is yeah. <laughs> more of but anything. The, the, re- the reason for them doing that was so that it would not only give the relationship a chance to develop more naturally and kind of more organically, just giving it space to breathe, I guess, yeah. rather than trying to shoehorn that um, yeah. love story into a 90-minute this beat, this beat, this beat, this beat. And also to let the secondary characters kind of be explored a a little bit more and those other relationships. So what the conversation I'm having at the moment is about this particular project is looking at how we can explore the world of this particular relationship, rom-com relationship, a little bit more deeply, I guess, um, and really explore the other relationships that are not as important as the primary love relationship, I guess, in uh, for, in the context of the story. But how can we make the world bigger and how can we explore the world of that relationship as well as just the primary relationship? Yeah, yeah so it's, a, it's about figuring out whether there's enough story there, uh, yeah. what that story could be. Also looking at often when you pitch a TV show, the, one of the first things they will ask is, so where do you see it going for season two or mm-hmm. season three? And so that's an interesting conversation because when you think about the trajectory of uh, a traditional rom-com story, once the once the love, you know, once they're together yeah, and they get the, the happy ever after, what story is left after that? So it's about figuring out how you would, um, I guess, manipulate the story to go across multiple seasons or whether yeah. you would then take it somewhere else. Or So it, it's actually a really fascinating space. So it's, yeah, it's it's a really interesting situation that I'm in at the moment, obviously with the, the book being shopped and the, um, the screen project also in development as well. So Yeah, well, it's exciting to me. I love the idea of that as well. And it sort of goes to how easily that question could be answered. What will we do in mm. season two? Now, I just had a question come up in a group which was all about resisting that thing that was needed. So being resistant to going to the page because you don't, as the creator, want to face whatever the character Mm. is going through. And by the way, the character is going through their own, I don't want to do that. And then Mm. you, as the creator, are sort of supplementing that. And that sounds, I don't know, potentially very vague and woo-woo, but anybody who is listening to this may have that experience where they don't know why they're not showing up to the page. But Mm -hmm. what you were just talking about is about how deep does number one, your knowledge, and I mean, intuitive, emotional knowledge about different characters go. So you can have those conversations Mm -hmm. with potentially a production company about Well, this, we only showed this. I'm such a visual person. Sorry, I'm moving my hands around a little world, like a little globe, (laughs) but that in fact, that planet is so much bigger, but we've only Mm. shown this little part over here and where we could go 
is this particular challenge in this life? Like I'd said before, we've all got multiple story arcs. Answering that question, where could it go in a season two, is really about playing out some of yeah. the other arcs. Otherwise, and I'm not sort of throwing shade at soap operas, but the only way for them to keep going is to feel like they're jumping the shark all the time. Yeah. Like yeah. someone, bring someone back from the dead. <laughs> right. Like they, yeah. oh, we thought they died, but their body was missing. And therefore, you know, we can bring them back or no, mm. that was their twin that mm. died. And they're really, whatever, million different. I, th- I think, I think what it comes down to with figuring out where story could go and when you're expanding out a world like that is, is really understanding your characters yeah. from the, the outset. And when you're digging into them is just trying to find ways that, you know, what is going to challenge them the most? Where, where do you see them going and what's going to be the thing that makes it the hardest for them to get there or what did, you know, so it's just extrapolating out from that, which I guess you know that with your main character anyway. Um, yeah. or you should, or you should do, but I, I, I think that's what it's about. And, uh, that's when you hope, uh, especially with a, a TV show that you have the benefit of, say, a writer's room, um, yeah. or at least some other brains, because sometimes yeah. you can be a little bit close. And sometimes, especially if it's a project. So for example, this project I have, which is, it's not the only project that I have that is like this writing the novel. I feel like I know my character inside out. But if I'm trying to extrapolate out from that and and look for other opportunities for story, sometimes having other people's brains in yeah. the mix and yeah. with with them looking at the characters and getting to know the characters and then their kind of insight and that can all that can be based on their own experiences. That's a hundred percent based seen, on so, that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's think- that's uh, writers' rooms are wonderful for that. I think that's really interesting that you say that too. And why I've always been fascinated about that difference. So normally if writers are writing long form novels, they get to be in control and there, mm-hmm. there are benefits to that and challenges to that. So the whole other than beta readers, but again, they're still just living in that one world when you've got a, mm. or one brain. When you've got a writer's room, you take the schema of everyone else who's showing up. Mm. And again, the benefit too, hopefully, that everyone that's in that writer's room, and you've talked about this before, you no longer take things quite as personally because everybody's spitballing and you're throwing everything out there. And you've got, and you've got to say, so like a comedian in prepping for, you know, a, a show is going to be throwing out some jokes and seeing what's the response. Seeing what lands, yeah. Right, and if it doesn't land, you go, oh, that doesn't actually sound as good as I thought. You really really can't be precious in a writer's room. You you literally, it's, if you're lucky and you're in a really good writer's room, because sometimes they can be tricky, sometimes, you Mm. know, it's, it's such a great environment for just letting your letting your mind wander and throwing ideas out and and you can't be precious because sometimes things will land and sometimes they won't but the thing is uh, we always say there there aren't any stupid ideas <laughs> i mean yeah. there are some sometimes there are some stupid <laughs> ideas but sometimes sometimes those i mean whoever came up with fonzi jumping a shark in happy days that was yeah literally leads uh, literally to this phrase that we use yeah. yeah i find that sometimes the the things that get thrown out that don't work are sometimes the thing the things that trigger your mind or someone else's mind yes. there's like a thread that goes yeah. it's like a, a path it's almost like it, it, the, 
three silly ideas in a row led to the good idea. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It, yes. So it's yeah. I just saw, I, I love I love writers' rooms. Yeah, I just saw something like a snippet, and it was like a Matt Damon talking about and to probably some interviewee thing with Ben Affleck talking about Goodwill Hunting and mm-hmm. talking about where they were really early on and talking about how many stupid ideas came out, but not mm. judging someone on the stupid ideas, but mm. remaining in the room until the good yeah, ones good, come out. Goodwill Hunting was originally a, apparently a thriller. What? Like in its first, in its in its first incarnation, it wow. was a completely, completely different film, and the way it ended up. And the, I mean, I often use oh. Goodwill Hunting as a when I was teaching as a demonstration of um, when you look at a character's kind of uh, makeup, like their their wound and their flaw and yes. what they want and their goal, and how all of that interconnects, and or how it should interconnect with whatever you're trying to say with the film is a whole matrix that I like to draw on a whiteboard and get really excited about. And Goodwill Hunting and Bridget Jones are two, Bridget Jones's diary are two of the best examples of that and how that matrix works together and taps back into theme. And if anyone's interested in finding out more about that, there's uh, a, a whole bunch of things on the internet. You can just Google it. It's quite well yeah. documented, but yeah. It's so funny. Bridget Jones gave me my idea for the one stage or just explaining to people what one, the one stage is. And it was the sitting on the sofa, eating ice cream straight mm-hmm. out of the little carton because everyone gets to that stage. Yeah. And that's that surrender part. And the next part is the fine, I'll get up again, but only if I don't have to change. Like I'm going to have food dribbles. I'm just mm. going to be totally me, vulnerable. I don't care. I'm done trying. And then that's eventually the the story that takes them to where they wanted to go the whole time. So mm. ultimately the being vulnerable and letting the cracks show, I'm thinking about, especially in Goodwill Hunting, all of his back and forth with Robin Williams's character. And oh, it's just beautiful. I, so I can't imagine, well, I mean, I could, if I were forced to imagine how in one iteration, it could be a thriller, but how much more, <laughs> satisfying to have it be the story it was, which is pulling all of those different strings and watching somebody overcome, not where they came from. Yeah, that, but more overcome their own sort of restrictions. And that always has to do with that being able to show themselves some Mm. love. And that's the same thing in Bridget Jones's diary, right? We go from being hypercritical and therefore having whatever front. And then they were able to, I mean, obviously people could have an argument about how successfully, but there were two other movies after that. I mean, Mm. obviously they thought, let's keep this going. We like the (laughs) character. Wow. So do you have a preference at the start of a, a process with it? Like the ideas coming Mm-hmm. Do you use the screenwriting stuff you know to help you plot whether or not something is going to go into that form? Or is it the same? It starts um, back before there and then you either expand it in one area or another. I think uh, it, 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 it honestly, yeah, it honestly varies. And I, and I do bounce around. Like if, if I, I mean, I, I'm literally looking at my pile of notebooks right now next to my couch <laughs> and there's, there's way too many of them. And every, every project I have has a different notebook. I think I have a problem. No, but the stationary, <laughs> stationary creators love you. Oh, yes, they do. It's, it's, it's hard to say because I think the percolation period of, of an idea just happens in 
my mind and in my like it is with, does with a lot of people obviously um, and scraps of notes in notebooks or in my notes on my phone or voice notes and and I'll just sit on an idea for a while and until I have an idea not just the kind of high concept like overarching idea but I'll I'll have enough that I can start mapping it out like I'll know where I I know, I know what I want to say and I know how I want it to end. It's usually the stodgy middle part that's the that's the difficult bit. No, no, for everyone, I yay! I know how it ends. So we're all the same, but it it can vary. Sometimes I start plotting it, and I don't know what it is yet. I don't know whether it's a novel. I don't know whether it's a TV show. I don't know whether it's a film. I just know what the story is, and and it, and it can honestly change based on without sounding too mercenary or or commercial. Sometimes I think. Well, I know that people are really looking, like screen-wise, people are really looking for this at the moment and this idea that I have, well, I mean, it could be either a novel or a TV show, but I know people are looking for that at the moment. So I might knock up a one-pager for something and and pitch it as a TV show and just see if there's interest. And sometimes that can guide me into what I'm writing or juggling. Yeah, it's it can, it's different all the time. I just, I like to hear about this combination of sort of a responsiveness to the, the, a responsiveness to the responses, a responsiveness to your environment based mm. on what you're hearing and letting it play out and not holding this white knuckle grip on whatever it is and letting things play out a little bit. So well, being I think, flexible. I think story is just story. And, yeah. and I know it sounds a little bit wanky. I'm, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't say that on your podcast. Okay. I sometimes say, uh, I mean, I do obviously call myself a writer, but sometimes I do say I'm a storyteller. And I think mm. one of the things I love so much about what I do is that for me, the form is not the important thing. The story is what's important to me. And often, I mean, you look at so many great books are then optioned and, and then adapted into a TV show or a film. Or sometimes there's a great film and then a novelization comes out. Um, or there's offshoots. So story is, story is story. And if you have a great story, I think it can be massaged into whatever form you want it to be. So sometimes things will tell you, oh no, I'm definitely a novel. But the thing is, if you go, yeah, you might write that as a novel, but then someone falls in love with it and and wants to adapt it into a film and then it becomes a film. So a good story is a good story. Mm, I think that's a mic drop moment. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should end there because I can't get anything more perfect than that. Honoring story, which is also one of the ways to sometimes get yourself out a potential troubling spot. Like you think, should yeah. I do this or should I do that? And it all boils down to what is honoring the story. Mm-hmm. So that balance again between being responsive to the external, what people are saying, what's the temperature, what are they looking for, but also ultimately going inside and collaborating with the story and saying, I will yeah. honor whatever. And then it can take on whatever form it wants. Yeah, it, it always has to be organic. What works for the story? I mean, sometimes you, you can you can tell when you watch something on the screen that has just been shoehorned into a particular format, yes. or um, something's you know something happens in the in the plot that doesn't seem to to make sense. And and I think you always have to come back to character, and you always have to come back to story. And it has to you know it has to it really has to work for the story you're trying to tell. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today. I know that we're going to have. Thank you for having I mean, me. You'll, 
you'll be on the podcast heaps more, but Mm -hmm. specifically talking about these things, like where these story projects go, what form they take, which form did they take first and all of that stuff. But I'm so grateful to have had you here. Thanks for chatting to us today, Rach. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.